0: Welcome back. It's been a long time since we recorded, by the way, but you don't know that because the episodes keep dropping. But here we are in civil discourse. By the way, Charles, you know what? This is not a safe space.
1: This is not a safe space, and it's an ever-changing space because this is a big day for us. You know what? Today is the first time we've had here.
0: What what do we have?
1: We have a guest co-host with us today, all the way from the land of Nod um my dear friend our dear friend your dear friend uh mr peter aziza esquire is in the house
0: (sighs) welcome 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 peter say hi to the people please
2: uh hi to the people and thank you very much for that welcome i don't know if um i'm ever going to surpass it but um i will do my best to go out in a wonderful blaze of glory
1: so I, I think it's, it's, it's worth just sharing very quickly a, a little bit of the nature of who Peter is and how we know him and how he's come to be here with us today. Um, Peter and I met uh, somewhere in the, the, the count of 15, 14, 15 years ago out in Los Angeles um, at a, a film screening. He was a burgeoning uh, film student from the uh, L.A. campus of uh, New York Film Academy, I think it was. And I think I was there on a date. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I wasn't in any of the films. That but... kind of sounds like you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: not anymore, not anymore.
1: <laughs> well, I, I don't actually uh, remember who I was there with, but I met Peter, and he and I uh, stayed in touch quite, quite nicely over the years. Um, Peter, I left and had headed back to New York. Uh, a year or two later, and Peter shortly uh, left and headed back to the UK, I think it was, in London. Um, and uh, Peter works in the world of uh, film production and, and writing and directing um, and photography and all kinds of, what is the term you use? He's a
2: creative.
0: creative. He's a creative, a creative. apparently. apparently <laughs> so. we're, we're very hip now. We use the word creative. <laughs> So, anyway, and, and by the way, then you've you you facilitated an introduction between Peter and myself, and uh, the running joke was a Nigerian prince sent me money because he and I did some business together, and then he called me one evening, and two three hours later, you know, he, he's the friend you didn't know you had until you talked to him, and, and so Peter and I became fast <laughs> and curious friends through you, uh, where we we. We conversed about 85 different subjects over three hours until I realized it was like four in the morning in Europe. So, (laughs) so, And
1: and, and so having given that, I think, Mike, I got to share this with you because I I know you'll appreciate it. This poor man, because I told him two days ago that he was going to be joining us for uh, today's podcast, uh, has been sweating bullets. It's, you know, that old uh, cartoon where the chain smoking and drinking, uh, you know, that's not PC anymore. Because I told right, him, man. I told him our show was an hour long, and he's and and he's been up all night doing research on uh, this topic so that he could feel like he uh, belonged to the room. And I said, I wouldn't have invited you if uh, yeah. if you didn't belong to the room. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Peter, you're gonna do great. No worries here. And and you can tell this is kind of a stream of conscious thing that we're doing here anyway. So my my advice, and, and I'll say it in front of the people, is fake it to make it. So
2: Well, um, well thank you. I mean that's it's yeah. it's great that we're we're actually starting with film in that case then, because that of course is one of the um the mantras of the of the film world or the the maxims, fake it till you make fake it. Fake it till you
1: it. make it. Um So on the subject of the cinema, um, which is our topic today, first of all, I don't know if I formally said it, but uh, welcome to all the listeners out there now that we've, you know, we're like halfway through the show. Um, This is civil discourse. This is not a safe space. And of course, we come here together to talk about... Uh, challenging, interesting, inspirational, and and sometimes uh really uh difficult topics uh, to do with uh, everything that is the human experience, but certainly in the world of human interaction and uh, community and culture. And one of the things that I have really had on my mind is uh, we've continued over the past couple of years. I'm a lover of film and I know that that is a shared passion amongst the three of us. Um, Mike, if memory serves, uh, you actually served as the projectionist when you were in the military.
0: Yeah. I I was a movie projectionist during uh, probably the third golden age of Hollywood. So I, I, Hmm. I, showed movies from about 1981 through the mid 1990s. So I've probably seen almost all first run features from that era. Uh, at some point or another, and then went and studied film as a as a fun thing to do while I was in university because I was a late university goer and sat in front of a professor who uh, had been a sound guy in Hollywood for many years and then ended up in in journalism and was one of the sound guys who was interviewing like Richard Nixon during Watergate. So he he was old school Hollywood mm. type uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I have a great love of 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 film, and uh, particularly Peter. You don't know this, but Japanese uh, film, uh, post World War II Japanese film. So. It's
2: something that apparently, I mean, it it just came to me uh, yesterday by uh, through Fred. Um, your great uh, appreciation for for Kurosawa. Um, I wish you had told me before. Uh, we would have had well, we'd have had plenty more to talk <laughs> about previously. Um, I hope he does get round to asking you though what effect that um, watching most of the first run films through the late eighties into the nineties has had on you. Um,
0: it's an so. it's an appreciation for filmmaking, and I, I want to preface anything we say with some some hard truth. And I think as artists, the three of us certainly know this, but the reality of of the world is this: most songs are never heard, no, most books are never read and most films are never seen. And we have to understand that when we go into this this depth. So someone like Kurosawa, who experienced a lot of his successes during his lifetime, that's incredibly rare. Oftentimes it's more the, we discover this guy 20 years after he's passed away. And he never gets to or she never gets to uh, to hear the accolades that, that were well-deserved. So I, I don't mean to start with a downer, but I think that's reality. Anytime well, it's, we talk about it's an interesting
1: comparison. And I mean, the other you, you speak of, of music, books and film and, and art in general. I mean, the, 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 most of the The standard expectation is, if you had any talent at all, your art really is still is not your visual art is still not worth much until after you're dead, right? I mean, that's I, when I, things I, go I, from pennies to millions. Very few people um, in the in the world of art uh, have had the exception, and it's it's important to remember that the. The stars that we are constantly bombarded with, whether movie stars, directors, artists, uh, writers, whatnot, that are enjoying success in their lifetime—that's winning the lottery. That—that's—that's—that's that's, that's a roll of the dice. That's not—not not to say it's not indicative of hard work, but a lot of people have put in hard work and good time and training and talent and still not necessarily gotten to witness the the personal experience of success in the way that we have come to understand and expect success to look. And this transitions to really what I what I'd like to talk about in the world of film because obviously there's so much that we could discuss um, especially from an international perspective uh, we could never in 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 the 40 minutes remaining of the show uh, really barely scratch the surface but I'm really interested in hearing from the two of you your perspective on the shifting and and, and we're in America as we speak but um, so that might be the the foundation of the uh, reference point but I think it's it would be interesting and Peter I'm, I'm Uh, hoping you might be able to give us some insight from a a UK perspective. Uh, I don't know if I've mentioned, but uh, Peter also hails from Nigeria. So there's uh, some degree of West African.
2: It's okay. I think Mike mentioned that. uh, Did he talk about the Nigerian prince and the emails and everything? Yes. Yes. Well, he didn't give the context
1: for that story, but maybe it'll come around. That's a (laughs)
2: storytelling thing, perhaps. Uh, We're doing it now out of of chronology or out of sequence. There it is.
1: But... I think the idea of storytelling is, is really a rich uh, study. And it is one of the oldest things in human history. I mean, right back to the, the age of pre- prehistory uh, cavemen, they're, they're, we see the art on the walls. We we know there is a verbal tradition, an oral tradition of storytelling that it goes back as far as back goes in, in our human experience. And that, of course, has shifted through uh, the centuries, the millennia, um, depending on both whatever is going on in the human experience and the technology we have to tell it and show it. Um, I mean, the earliest cinema probably is still on the walls of some cave in in France at this point, uh, comparatively speaking. But one of the topics that is often part of a conversation today is around the portrayal of violence, sex, um, uh, difficult topic matters, language, and and how we use it. Uh, A quick example, last night, I think we were watching one of, it was episode two, I think, of the new Picard series, the Star Trek series, and for the most part, being a Star Trek fan, I found the story to be compelling thus far um, and and fairly well told, except, and, and Peter remarked that he had heard a criticism that it isn't Star Trek. And I had asked why. And he said, well, it, Star Trek has traditionally been this uplifting sort of, you know, bright beacon of the best of humanity being portrayed. And even dealing with difficult situations, uh, doing so with a certain decorum and telling that story with a certain language and and highbrow approach. And yet, I think the F-bomb was dropped at least one rather explicit example uh, from an admiral uh, who was not too happy with Picard in the scene. And there were some, not overt, but definitely more in your face, sexual reference that then had been traditionally part of the Star Trek universe. Hot Romulans. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was an interesting example, not in a film necessarily, but still in storytelling, how that expectation has shifted. And is it because our audience wants to see it? And therefore, it is the storytellers, you know, providing Demand, or is it the a shift in the culture of storytelling itself? And how have we seen that from the days of Kurosawa to and and uh you know, Mike, this might go back to some of what we talked about in our early episodes about men wearing hats. Uh yes. <laughs> you know, it's it's there is a shift in the decorum of both the speaker and the listener, so to speak. And I'm curious your thoughts about that.
0: Well, I, I'm going to, if Peter's okay, I'll go first because I had a couple of thoughts that popped into mind Then I'll cede yeah, I'll the floor to Peter. But I, I, I was thinking as you were talking, I think there may be a third option and maybe the natural evolution of filmmaking uh, that we're seeing. And, and, and you're going to love how I'm going to reference this back. The first person who did the quick wipe, what we now call the smash cut between scenes, was Kurosawa, mm-hmm. who did the quick wipe across the screen and had the jarring change uh, from one scene to the next. And, and I believe the first film he did that in was in 1950, uh, where he he started using those quick wipes uh, to go from scene to scene. And so then we had the the 80s filmmaker who started off on Miami Vice. Is that Michael Mann, am I right, or something, Mann? That
2: was Michael that Mann, right? Miami Vice, yeah.
0: Yeah, and he was the guy who took that to the next extreme where, you know, it was a big explosion, bang, next scene, big explosion, bang, next scene. And I, th- I think we're seeing that that quick short bite filmmaking now where you're not getting uh the long cuts you know we we read film books and we're always amazed that this shot in the searchers was a straight shot for the for like 15 minutes and and we just can't imagine that now where we're getting those 30 45 55 second bites of film between each scene Uh, That that, Let's be honest. Filmmakers are doing it because audiences are demanding it.
1: Well, so it's interesting because my wife uh, loves to tell the story of the time she was in the kitchen and uh, became aware that I was watching a film in the other room. And she kept hearing me somewhat unconsciously uh, saying, change, 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 change. And what was happening, uh, though I don't necessarily... I, I don't know how intentional it was the director in me was watching how quickly he was cutting from shot to shot and this was a, 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 a Michael, Michael Bay, Bay Baffin. Michael Bay as if I didn't know that but um, <laughs> it just it just,
2: yeah. it just seems like somehow it could be and it would be
1: and and it's become a calling card for for Michael Bay which is an extension of you know sort of where this expectation of <laughs> the the what was it uh, the soft bigotry of low expectations i mean this idea that uh, we have to keep the audience engaged so let's not make them pay attention to anything longer than five seconds which was the average cut as i was paying attention that was the movie armageddon i think i was watching
2: five seconds that's like that's that's a lifetime and, <laughs> yeah in these days in in these days i mean you, to to work at it backwards, almost um, there is there are studies that show that um, the average shot length um, in uh, in Hollywood or uh, American movies has declined from about eight seconds in perhaps around the sixties to about three and a half, maybe four seconds now. Wow, um, and you know there there are questions about what that kind of um what that kind of what effect that uh that that kind of uh, that process has um on people sort of on people's minds on um on their ability to sort of to concentrate um and on how much information they're actually taking in um a, a lot of this is you see film isn't of course Film doesn't exist in a vacuum. When you're asking about where, how has film been uh, affected or changed by um, these questions of um, sexuality and violence and stuff, we, I guess we have to remember that film exists um, as part of you know sort of cultural expression. Um, there, there are sort of you know cultural movements that feed into film as much as film perhaps even sort of uh inspires and launches some cultural movements um it's uh, an art that's just over a century old sort of thing um it's had uh times of sort of great censorship uh, just in the same way that one could say uh, in societally there has been a measure of uh, of censorship sort of earlier Early in the last century, at least if we look at sort of like American film, you had, um, you know, um, from the Great Depression, you had, you know, Prohibition, as uh, uh, which came about through like the temperance movement. So almost sort of societal restrictions. This found its way into into film in a very sort of conservative uh, America. Then, of course, later on, you have the 50s and the 60s and you have the the sort of the sexual revolution. Or um, that kind of, you know, um, outpouring of of color um, and and rebellion. Um, and of course, film goes along for the ride. Um, well, we
1: were talking on the way over here about and, and Mike, um, you know, being our resident uh, elder in the room. Um, <laughs> you might be able to <laughs> give more context than I can. But I know that in television, at least, and I think it was for film, too. And, and, and maybe I have it backwards, but there was the um, Standards and Practices Commission, which...
0: Right, right. In film, it was called the Hayes Code. And the Hayes so Code. That okay, code yeah. That, that would, uh, and that kicked in in the early 1930s. And, and if you watch those pre-code movies, you're, you can be stunned at, at, at this particularly sexuality... Uh, or, or anything
1: that could be even related to it. So, you know, of course, one of the yeah. standard examples is you could not have a king size bed in, a, in, in the I master think. bedroom. It had to be two twins separate yeah.
3: um,
1: because to be one bed is to suggest what one might do with it. Um, you couldn't show a toilet. You know, if there was a shot in a bathroom, it was pretty much at the sink looking in a mirror. You could not show something dirty like, you know, a toilet bowl. <laughs> you know. Well,
0: the first TV show to show a toilet bowl was Leave It to Beaver. Uh, mm. And I'm not kidding. Uh, and, and by the way, Marino Maureen O'Sullivan, not O'Hara, was in the first Tarzan movie when skinny dipping yes. in the movie is shown on film. And then two, at least I think two or three Tarzan movies later, the Hayes Code had been implemented, and, and it was edited uh, out. Everything changed, you know. Mm. It, it was, it was much less. Well, it's less realistic. Let's be really honest. Uh, nobody jumps in the water with with bloomers on. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but you know, it, it is, it is, it, and to Peter's point, it is about changing times and societal pressures. And let's be really honest: film lags society by probably five to ten years. Uh, in that uh, the Hayes Code, I think, was in place until 70 or 71, I think. I'm I'm not 100% certain. I'll put it in the show notes when it actually ended. It started, and standards and practices still exist. It started to, I think,
2: really get watered down around like the 50s and the 60s. Part of the, the problem as well for, um, for the code was that television was uh, was coming up um very strongly and there were lots of policing the code became a little bit difficult um and then of course there was the issue of foreign films which didn't have to sort of subscribe to the code at I all ain't. and were also getting released um yeah. and it almost became this kind of um this kind of old foggy type of um square thing to almost a uh, to To show deference to a little bit. And it just, it started to lose a little bit of its power, I think.
0: So 34 to 68, I just looked it up. And, and to your point, it was, I remember, and I was, I'm a little bit younger than that, but I remember getting a book called I Am Curious, which was about the I Am Curious movie series, Blue and Yellow, and uh, which I believe are Swedish films. And that was a film that startled America, you know, banned in Boston comes from that movie. Uh, where, you know, it couldn't be shown in Boston because it was way too sexual. The funny thing is I I actually saw a little bit of it a few years ago. You can see more on HBO and Cinemax. I'm sorry. So anyway, uh, yeah, you know, and, and you're right. Television forced the issue. Mm-hmm. It really did. You know, I think uh, I Love Lucy was the first time they showed a couple in bed. Is that right?
2: Interesting. Uh, something about sure. i
0: love lucy or or a baby they showed a baby uh, uh the birthing process of a baby or something like that which was mm. not what it sounds yeah, I mean like. they
1: didn't mm. show it but we were in the room and, right, right and, and okay. in the and yes it, i mean before uh, not much well so certainly around then even though it was obviously starting to wane but you couldn't even say words like pregnant right it was it, you right. know you were in a family right. way you were uh, you know, there were all these it, euphemisms with
2: child, with child, with, yes, with child. I am with child, ready to take to bed or something. Oh, that's dangerous. I, <laughs> no, I I to be, bed. Don't I could say be that. Misconstrued. <laughs> but I think in the end, it um, it did. I think it fell as well to um, to First Amendment rights surrounding film. That film became classed as a uh, the expression in film became classed as a First Amendment issue, and perhaps that's what finally. Did away with that, which is interesting, of course, because I mean, if you sort of then consider later sort of First Amendment battles around things like music, um, and you know, um, groups like Two Life Crew and stuff like that um, in the in the sort of in the eighties and stuff, which also again fed back into this culture of well, um, expression should be protected expression should be should properly be free um uh in 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 all ways and if we just go back again a decade um we'll see that remember at at a certain point in this country there were theaters cinema chains that showed um pornographic film um i can't remember exactly what the name of it was (laughs) i think it was um
1: was it deep throat
2: or deep blue there
3: you go yes
1: Wait, so, Keith is raising his hand. I think he remembers the uh, location. <laughs> no, no, I have a
3: fact check about the first uh, show that had a couple in bed. Okay. It was actually a show called Mary Kay and Johnny, November 18, 1947. Oh. Okay. Mm. It was, this
1: was a television show. It
3: was a television okay. show on the Dumont, uh, the Dumont Television Network, later to CBS. It's, yes, and Yeah, later to CBS. They couldn't, right. they couldn't hide her pregnancy, so they ended up showing her in bed, and then the birth, and then... Her son, their son, became a character on December thirty first, nineteen forty eight. Okay, <laughs> weeks old.
1: Okay, and and that and that's about when men stopped wearing hats and society fell down the toilet right there. Nineteen
0: sixties, <laughs> men. Nineteen sixties, when men stopped wearing hats. But but I, I think uh, it, it, to Peter's dead. I didn't ever think about it. Never made the connection television pushed movies out of the Hays Code, and I think that's that's a pretty revealing point. So the Hayes Code was replaced with the rating system and Hollywood misplayed their hand and, and created a real situation. They had copyrighted G, P, G, and R. They did not copyright X. And hmm. so what happened was the pornographers grabbed a hold of X. And I'm just using that term as a general term, not as a judgment term and said, well, that may be X, but I'm double X. Well, you may be double X, but now I'm triple X. And so that's why the Mm. NC-17 rating comes around, uh, I think uh, probably 20 years later, 15, 20 years later, Mm. along with the PG-13, which was caused by the second um, Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. Really? Um, That was rated PG, and they thought the violence was too much and should have been not uh, not allowed under 13s in there. That would have been what,
1: Temple of
2: Doom?
0: Temple of Doom, yeah. Yes, Temple of Doom, mm. uh, and, and amongst other movies. But that Temple of Doom was the one okay, I Okay, wait, wait a
1: minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. In Temple of Doom, they drop someone off the ladder, and all we see is some alligators rolling around with some red I, rags. No, it's in, in, the
3: part where he goes kalima and goes into his heart. That's actually the specific scene re- <laughs> that they refer to for the PG-13 rating. They melted rating.
1: a man's face at the end of the first one.
3: <laughs> that was also part of it, but, but I, I think the uh the I remember reading really no, 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 about this. It's when he the hand goes into the heart.
1: I mean, yes, I remember the scene, but it still wasn't nearly as dramatic as watching a man's face. Look, melt. Let Indy, us, come be heart, Indy, Indy, come a
2: heart. Man being violent to man is a problem. God being violent to man, however, okay. is not a so. problem. That,
0: that's okay. That's fine. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> but it, it wasn't. It wasn't just Indiana Jones. It was the Gremlins movies. There were several oh, sure, movies in sure. that time frame that really got. Which, by to- the
1: way, I mean, because that's when I was growing up. Uh, those Gremlins was disturbing as a kid. Of course, it was. <laughs> and I still watch those movies with a certain trepidation. Not because I'm afraid of it, but it's like those those were not uh I remember Nightmare on Elm Street I refused to watch those films I was literally a freshman in college when I finally sat down and watched those because I'd seen a scene or two and I they were really disturbing
2: so can I just as a as somebody who didn't grow up in the states there's a as an interesting contrast here because in England we um We don't have um, sort of like the G, the the rating system is similar, but it differs wildly in one aspect in that, as I understand it over here, the R rating means sort of like restricted, which means it needs, there has to be an adult present sort of thing. So for all intents and purposes, a 10 year old could go to an R rated movie if If an an adult adult was with them. That's correct. We don't have, which in England doesn't exist because you just have, it's very specifically set at um, uh, U, which is sort of universal sort of thing. There's a PG. There was a 12 rating, which came about through, because of Batman, the first Batman film, the one with Michael Keaton and um, and Jack Nicholson, that, uh, that started the 12 rating. And then 15 and 18, and that's it. And if you're not of that age, then it doesn't matter if you've got, you know, a pack of adults with you, it's just not happening. Um, which is an interesting sort of, I, I think, difference between between the two. There's this idea here perhaps that you can be chaperoned or your experience can be kind of, you could have a negotiated experience of a uh, violence if there is an adult to perhaps explain to you that, you know, it's just ketchup, Timmy, or something. Um, the other thing I would sort of, that I think at some point, hopefully we would cover is the 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 quite perhaps obvious or the difference in the ratings given to um, films um, and the treatment of films with sexual aspects uh, compared to those with violent aspects. Um, I remember talking to a, a friend of mine who was... Um, Uh, a Swedish friend of mine, and she was saying that over there, um, in her experience, it seemed that films that had violence in them had much higher ratings than films that had sexual scenes and sexual content in them. The idea being that sex was a natural thing that everybody would experience, should experience, I suppose, and was a part of life, whereas violence was the unnatural thing. And that was what that if there was going to be a measure of censorship, that that was what it should be about.
1: That's
0: interesting. It is. And and I I, I am, uh, you know, we've lost a battle because everything's available on the internet now, if if it was indeed Mm -hmm. ever a battle. But I I find it very interesting. And and I, I... I experienced the same going to back to Germany to visit my grandparents and, and my uncles and aunts and and you know watched German television. and was just shocked at what was on just regular television as a 12, 13, 14 year old. Uh, and, and to your point, uh, I think Germany had a similar restriction restric- 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 system where uh, you could attend certain movies with an adult, but then the next rating up, you couldn't attend it regardless of whether an adult was mm-hmm. with you. Um, and so I, I experienced that as well, but I, I've heard that argument about sex versus violence, and uh, you know it, it's it's an interesting argument. It's a social argument in that uh, the use of violence in film is a way to uh, bring the idea of death into a film. If you really think about it, so uh, violence uh, you're you're kind of blurring the lines between life and death with sex and violence in movies. I don't know if you guys had ever heard this theory.
1: Well, there's also you know this. This actually uh, is a cultural thing that can be uh, witnessed. You know, in all different elements of of uh, consumption. Uh, for example, you know, when we, I, we have this Puritanism that we are constantly battling, and it's a pre- as far as I'm concerned, it's a pretense of it here in this country because we like, and it's it's been eroded to a degree, but there's still elements where we try and hang on to it and, and color it something else uh, when it comes to the portrayal of sex or sexuality. I think that's started to, well, it's not started, but it's well down the road of not being nearly what it used to be. But there's still this pseudo-virtuism that, that is portrayed. Now, you can buy what is a GQ magazines in the U.S., and it'll have ladies in bikinis. You go over to France and oh, yeah. those same women are topless. It doesn't mean the, the magazine is of higher levels of sexuality in its intent. It's that the idea of a woman's breasts is not taboo uh, the way it is over here. That's so why you'll also see, you know, public beaches in a lot of other parts of the country and so forth. It's just there's a different level of maturity, I would call it, um, than, than we tend to institutionally want to portray over here. And that certainly is the case in, in in our films.
2: Would you not say that a lot of that perhaps has come out of the still, I don't really want to say it's vestigial because it's still very sort of active, um, uh, Church and evangelical sort of you know movement that uh, persists in America, whereas perhaps in in Europe, um, that kind of ecclesiastical fervor has perhaps, um, you know, uh, waned a little bit.
1: Well, again, I mean, the answer is yes, and and it goes back to that initial puritanistic thinking that you know came over here as an escape from the debauchery of Europe, I guess uh, in the in the age of Luther uh, Martin Luther. But the, the, the irony of it, of course, is that while it probably was not, well, no, I don't even know if I can say that. Um, I was, I was about to say it probably was legitimately a consideration initially, but I think historically, a lot of the same people who were burning witches, so to speak, were also messing around behind the barn. So it's always been a, a degree of, uh, um, inconsistency I think over here but we have held on to it as a public virtue uh, in in until very recently where in some cases I think our backlash the the the, the pendulum swing has gone so far to the other extreme um, and is that a, a a way of again as Peter you mentioned the First Amendment freedom of expression is this is this just a, a way to counter that? Um, to the extent that maybe it is too much, I don't know.
0: I, I think I think though there's there's multiple elements involved here. First off, New England was settled by Puritans and Pilgrims. Pilgrims were ones that thought that the Anglican Church couldn't be purified, so they had left completely yes. and, and gone on. Whereas I, I I was thinking about you know the sexualization of breasts, and I, I actually saw a, a, a documentary on this whole thing where they interviewed men in Africa, Asia, et cetera. And really it's it's only in America where we, we really sexualize breasts the way some other cultures don't. And um, the thing I kept thinking while you were talking, Charles, is that it was Puritans, Pilgrims, Methodists, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, you're talking Catholics and Anglicans, predominantly are the two religious forces in Sub-Saharan Africa where breasts aren't nearly as sexualized as they are here in in the U S and Canada. Uh, and then in Europe, you know, half of Europe was Catholic and the other half was Protestant basically. But if you look at France and Spain and Italy, where they're much more open about sexuality, uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago, those are all Roman Catholic areas. Whereas Northern Europe where they at the time were much more, um, prim and proper were Protestant areas. And, And I think your point was that Protestantism has played a huge, and I'm not attacking one side or the other, don't misunderstand me, but I think those cultural influences do need to be taken into account.
2: They do. I think um, at the same time, perhaps it's a, there's a thing of the, the power of the church has actually sort of declined in many of these places in Europe, rendering whatever sort of viewpoint they have a little bit sort of moot, whereas the power of the church in American society has seemingly if not grown definitely become more organized in i don't know the last how many decades I, and uh, stuff would you say Politic- politically organized and that yes, yeah exactly. and that of course feeds down into you know into what sorts of social behaviors and um i mean it was it was a religious movement that actually sort of kick started or pushed for the the for prohibition so and uh, you you go from that uh, a century ago to you know church movements being able to kind of um being able to kind of elect uh, elect presidents and stuff like that so uh, when when you get to that level there's a there's a huge sort of social power I, the things like um things like um purity rings and you know purity dances and stuff like that this uh, this idea of a very formalized um a uh, structure to save young women from, uh, you know, from flirting with sex and stuff, has has only has only risen up in the last twenty or so years. That this didn't exist before as a thing. So
1: wait, so, say that one more time. You know, they, I I
2: don't know if you you were this uh you know you have purity rings uh rings. Oh that, yes, yes, yes okay. and they have okay. dances as well. They're sort of
1: um. I would say that's within somewhat specific. Communities, communities, religious communities
2: but, though. It's an
0: event it's an evangelical it's a, movement. Yeah. It is also reflected in the uh what which which is really an American phenomenon, the uh Mormon Latter-day yes, yes, Saints yeah, Church. Yeah. And then you're seeing the same thing. And and I am a, a conservative Catholic. You're seeing the same movement within conservative Catholic churches. Uh, but, but I, I find it interesting listening, Peter, and, and I have a question I want to ask about film before we end this episode for the two of you. But but before I ask my question, I find it very interesting because right now the fastest growing Christian churches in the world are in sub-Saharan Africa. And you're from the country where the line is uh, drawn between Northern Muslim Africa and of course Christian Southern Africa and, and so what I wanted to ask as a quick follow up are you have you seen any of those similar puritan not puritan but uh virtuous movements let's call it in, in Africa
2: well i mean it's um it, it it it's a big it's a big question it's a big continent um but it's undeniable that um um things have changed from sort of pre pre-colonial days um things have leaned into a very much more uh evangelical pentecostal baptist um uh, reading of uh of Christianity um across a number of uh, countries in the area um whereas colonial law perhaps left us with things on the books about um uh, about homosexuality it's only in recent times that a certain fervor to enforce these things has uh, has arisen um so there there's things like that um there is uh, there is there is pushback as well not not simply not simply from sort of um um from Christ- well not simply in in a sort of christian um from a Christian side, but also sort of an Islamic side. Um, so right, these are right. very dynamic <laughs> sort of um, movements uh, and very alive.
0: And we do need to recognize that even when we talk about Christian movements, um, the Muslim movement is is equally, um, mm. uh, what's the word I'm looking for, evangelical in that they, they like purity and, and, and all those things too as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the question I wanted to ask the two of you, because I am a consumer of film, not a creator you two are both creators of film and so the question is how has this movement in the last 20-25 years affected you as filmmakers
1: well i before i answer that question because i think it's related it's interesting because i find myself as a parent uh taking on more conservative views than i might have expected uh, when it comes to what the exposure of, you know, everything from sex, violence, and I'll go language. And generally, if, if I can add a fourth would be attitude um, that is portrayed uh, with respect to relationships on screen, whether it's male, female, parent, child, teacher, student, and so forth. And, you know, I, as we've said many times in previous episodes, I have an eight year old now and I'm watching him uh, negotiate through uh, things on the on the screen as far as not. We don't really do much in the way of video games in our house, but certainly cartoons and, you know, with the Internet being what it is and, and Apple TVs and all this other stuff. I mean, every cartoon that ever existed is available. And there's a huge chasm of difference between the way uh, the, the portrayal of of social elements uh, are portrayed in new cartoons for kids today as the way we saw them. Uh, when we were growing up in the early 80s and so forth. What cartoons did you watch in the early well, 80s? so, so for example, and but- obviously I'm speaking as an American, and so it will be interesting. But uh, Mike, you remember this, may remember this uh, in, in raising, um, or, or with your younger siblings probably, which are close to my age. Um, there was, I'll take one that jumps to mind. There used to be a cartoon version of The A-Team. Or Mr. T. It wasn't the A team. It was Miss, the Mr. T cartoon, and it was this whole series of. It wasn't Hanna Barbera, even though those were out there too. But there was this whole movement where if you were going, to, you would have a show, and the show would have a message, and either at the beginning and or the end of the show, sometimes both, right. there would be a summation of the moral, uh, the, the 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 moral play, so to speak. You know, children. Uh, honesty is the best policy, just say no to drugs, whatever it was. It was cheesy as all get out, but it was sort of the standard thing. Another element was around in cartoons, uh, again, things designed for children to watch. There was a way, standards and practices that um stuff like violence you could not show this was ninja turtles comes to mind which was big around that time just coming out you could not show even though they had all these weapons swords knives spears and so forth i can see keith is getting excited about this topic in the through the window here uh he, he remembers this you you could not show killing anything you right. couldn't even show uh you know violently attacking so if there was you know the bad creatures coming across the 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 ground you could see donatello waving his stick in the air uh and and running after them but then they would all just get scared and run he never actually struck anybody
2: <laughs> so an interesting thing with the it's interesting you mentioned the ninja turtles because of course they got renamed in uh, in in some sort of um, geographical locations and stuff to the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, <laughs> essentially for the fact that Ninja was seen as too violent and, um, and Hero was a much more palatable and PH7 um, way to sort of to represent them. But I would say beyond, um, you had these, the sort of like, for instance, this Mr. T cartoon, but at the same time, didn't we also have
3: Ren and Stimpy? Later. It was later. Yeah, but Ren Ren and Stimpy... Don't forget, there's a difference between broadcast shows and cable shows. The broadcast shows that are kids' shows actually had to comply to certain government Mm -hmm. regulations and had to have those cheesy messages Mm -hmm. to qualify as educational TV, whereas Nickelodeon Mm -hmm. showing Ren and Stimpy owned by MTV and Viacom, that's a different story. I was getting excited because you're talking about Turtles. I also recently learned about the Spider-Man series that happened on Fox near the same time. They could not say that Uncle Ben died. Right. Mm. That entire series, they never said Uncle Ben died.
1: I never thought about that, that, but you're right. Which is
3: crazy, because that that was a Fox stipulation when they did it, that on broadcast TV, they didn't want mentioning the death of Uncle Ben ever. Interesting. Which is like the whole catalyst for the entire (laughs) series.
2: Raising a generation of children completely uh unprepared for life <laughs> completely having no idea I,
0: I, I call it the disney i call it the, the disney, disney halo which existed for a long time where everybody comes back from the dead it's, everybody's okay and life is good it. the, the
2: disney of real quickly, life
0: quickly real quickly before we we start wrapping up ren and stimpy by the way the original creator of ren and stimpy lasted i think eight episodes john k was his name uh and then they fired him because he made an episode they could not air so so Ren and Stimpy always towed the line on what was acceptable even for cable. But the that was thing, the early
1: 90s, wasn't it, Ren yes, Stimpy? Uh-huh, because
0: so. my kids watched it. The other thing was, don't forget Captain Planet, which always started oh, with a message and yeah. ended with a message. <laughs> as easy as it was. Uh, and, and it's a far cry from the Bugs Bunny, Tom and Jerry I grew up with. Sure. Uh, which is is Looney very different. there was mm-hmm. no redeeming no redeeming qualities. Oh, to drop an anvil on their
1: head and, and yeah. they'll bounce right
0: back. Absolutely, and, and you know I always rooted for Wiley E Coyote, but anyway, it's yes. another story. But I, I think I think it's very interesting, and I wanted to point out Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started off as an R-rated comic book, basically. Where it was much more violent, much more dark, and, and much different than what it is on television. Diluted down
2: so. to the screen to be palatable <laughs> for for that audience. Uh, just if we have time, I just wanted to respond to your question, Mike, yes, about please. Yes, please. Um, our you know our our role or our feeling as a filmmaker. Um, I remember this. There's a scene in this. Um, um in this, this great movie little movie I've hardly seen at the time um with Toby Maguire, Michael Douglas and Robert Downey Jr. I think it's called The Wonder Boys uh, and it's about an author who's been writing this book forever. Um he's a he's a creative writing lecturer that's Michael Douglas and he comes he stumbles upon this book written by Toby Maguire. And he goes to Robert Downey Jr who's a, who's his agent and he's he's read this book by this young student and he's he's blown away by it. And he tries describing it to um, Robert Downey Jr., the the agent that says, I've got this genius in my class sort of thing. Um, And Robert Downey Jr. says, how good is it? And Michael Douglas says, it's better than good. It's true. And that always struck me as Mm -hmm. somebody sort of, you know, making making film, um, making art of any kind this question of, it's not a question so much of it, should we push the envelope? Should we not? Should we censor ourselves? Should we not? Should we fold? Should we uh, swing for the fences? For me, it's always this question of, we must be true. And how true and authentic can we be in, um, in expressing this and in sort of exhibiting this, this sort of, these human emotions, these questions. And we live in a time of ever, ever increasing kind of artificiality Um, from our images to what those images actually sort of say or suggest to the utter disposability of uh, emotions and actions and things like that. Um, And I'm always drawn back to the need as much as possible to be true.
0: I think we end on that. Charles, what do you think?
1: Oh, no, I still have miles to go before I sleep. (laughs)
0: We're we're at our time, and so I'm going to have to put my my size ten and a half, which is much smaller than yours, foot down and say we probably ought to wrap up. But I think that's a great point. And by the way, the movie is called Wonder Boys, and it has an 81 fresh rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Michael Douglas, Toby Maguire, Katie Holmes, Rip Torn, Robert Downey Jr., Great Richard cost. Thomas, and what Alan a,
1: What a group of amateurs! Jeez. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're talking, <they're> some, <laughs>
0: Alan Tudyk is is like one of my favorite oh, actors yeah. of all time. So this is this is a film that is going on my to watch list, which is about eight hundred and fifty two movies long. But but we're we're going to put it on there. And by the way, the soundtrack is amazing. I'm looking at the soundtrack. So. Um, yeah, I, I I I appreciate that. So, parting parting thoughts, and since you're our guest, Peter, you get to go first.
2: Parting thoughts uh, regarding well, everything, anything
0: uh, you want, anything you want. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I think um, I, I think uh, these are questions questions worth questions worth asking. Um, I, I think we we can't barricade ourselves away from the from the experience of things, um, there's it's especially when everything is out there somewhere and it, it is very much going to be coming at us um, in one way or the other. We have to learn how to kind of negotiate these things um, and perhaps uh, decide more for ourselves, lest we find ourselves in a situation whereby um, we are once again prescribed to as to what is supposedly good for us and what isn't.
0: There we go. Uh, and, and I, I'm not going to add anything. I think Peter was, uh, you know, the guy who was worried about this, this is, is ending on an incredibly brilliant note. I, I am a he consumer. Clearly film. clearly
1: nothing to offer.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah. He has nothing at all.
0: But you know, I, I've, I've been a consumer of film, a lover of film. I've studied film. I've never created, uh, but, but I have watched these trends and, and I'm very, um, very interested in them as I've watched what we used to call independent film really influence mainline film uh, where, where, you know, the, the ones who were the filmmakers who were doing really neat stuff in the seventies were, were not in the studio system. And, and it's been an interesting thing to watch. And I think there will be a backlash As Charles had mentioned, to some of these extremes that things have gone to, I, I real quickly, the Hitchcock film Rope was ten scenes in eighty-eight minutes. I, I found that very interesting.
2: Fantastic film, very (laughs) watchable. (laughs) One of my
0: favorites, and I'm a huge Hitchcock fan Mm -hmm. too. So anyway, I, I would like to thank you, Peter, for joining us for this episode. I think we get you for one more, and I'm excited to do that second one as well. And and Charles, I want to thank you for all your hard work. Do, do I do I
1: get any last, last, uh, you know, you
0: do, as my, soon as I yeah. hand it off to you? you, have to get so, it to you I will I never to hear the it. end
1: of it. I will never hear
0: <laughs> the
2: end of it if he doesn't get it.
0: <laughs> I, I, I want to go ahead and thank you, though, before I do hand it off to you, because I'm going to let you go ahead and wrap this episode up so you get the last word.
1: All right. Well, such as it is. I, I, I did. I, I also want to add uh, just a thought to your question about what it is to be a, a filmmaker, but more specifically, just a creator in, in a, through artistic expression of any type. And I think that the key for me is challenging an audience and using myself as a reflection point, uh, what would challenge me and, and thinking of things through that vein. And the difference is for me, you can challenge an audience's endurance or you can challenge their intelligence, and there's a difference there. Uh, there are films that are made today that seem like you're just asking me how long can I sit through this horrible experience? At least for me as an audience, and whether that's through violence or just terrible writing or whatever it is, um, or it's a challenge to my intelligence. Can you make me think? Can you make me have to actually ponder the the message or the question you're asking? And that's the kind of thing that excites me as an audience goer. And that's what excites me as a, as a creator. And a recent real quick example of that to me, we talk about the Michael Bay approach to five or less seconds uh, per shot. I thought the Michael Keaton film where it won, I think, best film, if not best actor, at least the Birdman of a film They manipulated the idea of the ongoing shot, but regardless, it to me was an interesting exercise in going completely the other direction. Making you have to sit there, not get up and go get your drink or answer your phone or use the bathroom. You had to sit there and engage that story as they demanded you to to follow it because they never cut, even if there was some technology that was used to make that an ongoing shot. And I thought that was really interesting. Regardless of what you think about the story, it uh, to me that challenged our intelligence um, more than our endurance. Even though there might have been some of that too, and I think that's that's something to to take forward into creative um, creative expression. So. With that, that is our cinema show. What have you been watching lately? Um, thank you, both of you gentlemen, and all three of you gentlemen. Uh, Keith are our, our esteemed uh, technician and, uh, and co-host on the other side of the glass there, who uh, always keeps our feet to the fire with the fact-checking and the... Uh, Yeah, I was there for that. I like (laughs) you. Peter, uh, you've come a long way to be here today. Uh, The longest commute uh, in this show's history, I think. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, I want to uh, acknowledge Sacred Heart University, where we record and produce this show, the School of Communications of the Arts, Uh, Dr. Jim Castingay. Um, Of course, Keith, as I mentioned, we could not be here without him. Uh, The Lazarus Trio, who brings us in and out of uh, this show with great music, Carl Groves and uh, Mike Koniger, I think uh, some of you might have heard of him. And of course, uh, my co-host, the uh, wonderful, the irreplaceable, the finest of the fine, Dr. Mike Koniger.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, you're going to end with that. So, um, <laughs> th- Thank you. Thank you to my co-host, Charles Frederick Crease, who is always is the, the brains behind this outfit. And I told you, you got the last word. I lied to you. 1982, an actor ad lib the following. I've seen things Pete, you people wouldn't believe attack ships on the fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain time to die our. let me know what the movie is when you email us at
1: civil discourse TNSS at gmail.com thats civil discourse this is not a safe space TNSS at gmail.com go like our uh, our subscribe and and and, and uh, follow the podcast give us a star what do they call it uh,
0: five stars smash five stars. smash that
1: button uh, I think it's yep. called and, uh, and tune in next week.
0: And tell me what movie I want to know. Thank you. (laughs)